Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my cost. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honor, as one man more, methinks, would share for me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one more. Rather proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named, and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot. But he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall never go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he never so vile, 
this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. scholar warriors and fellow travelers it is icj still here despite the dark period in terms of not many new episodes lately what you just heard is a pretty famous speech but in case you don't recognize it it comes from william shakespeare's henry v specifically act four scene three what's often called the saint crispin's day speech and this is an historical play it was written you know around 200 years after the events being depicted and this scene depicts the night before the battle of agincourt in 1415 during the hundred years war and this is a very famous battle in which the english defeated the french despite being outnumbered two to one and the scene is that Several of the king's right-hand men are expressing worry and doubt and wishing they had more reinforcements and so forth. And then King Henry V makes this dramatic speech that rallies them. And then, of course, the next day they go on to win a great victory, despite facing overwhelming odds. By the way, in this battle, King Henry V personally fought alongside his troops in close quarters combat, while King Charles VI of France was not even personally present. At the battle. I'm calling this episode Rallying Rhetoric. And what I've done is I've collected a series of speeches and writings from history that I at least find very inspiring and that really kind of buck me up when I hear them or read them. And I'm doing this for both of us, dear listener. I could use some rallying words myself right now, and probably many of you can too. Around the world, it's been a pretty dark couple of years for those of us who highly value liberty. Whatever we label ourselves, left, right, libertarian, anarchist, conservative, classical liberal, whatever it might be, if you're someone who places a very high value on individual human rights and freedoms, the last two years have been, pardon my French, a bit of a shit show. But I feel like there are some bright spots on the horizon lately, and there's at least some reason to hope, and to keep up doing whatever each of us can in our own humble way, to try to resist the forces that are trying to impose a new dark age on us completely. And not only are we all being run down and tired by sort of the big picture, big world out there, but I'm sure each of us, myself and every single one of you all listening, have experienced various personal hardships and problems and stresses over the last two years. I've talked a bit off and on about 
some of the stuff I've faced in various places, and I've faced even more than what I've shared publicly, to be honest with you. And I know there are plenty of people who have had it much worse than me. And in particular, for about the last two months, I've been dealing with the stresses all related to buying a new house and moving, which, you know, sounds like a wonderful thing, and in many ways it is. We're now purchasing a home, whereas we had been renting for the past three years, and the new home is in most ways superior to the one we had been living in and renting for the past three years. But the process of finding and purchasing a new house and then moving into it has been extremely stressful, as it often is. And especially the fact that this kind of overlapped with first the holiday break, which meant I really didn't get a Christmas break this year to recuperate, and then the fact that the new semester started up for me basically right as we were doing the final move into the new house has made it extremely stressful for the last month and a half, two months or so. And then we moved into the new house, and I discovered something I hadn't really quite wrapped my head around and noticed when we had just, you know, been looking at the house when it was empty and deciding to buy it and everything like that, which is, while the house that we bought is superior in most ways to the one we had been renting for the past several years, one place where it is decidedly inferior is in regard to sound and acoustics. I discovered that the new house, just in general, the rooms are way less soundproof than the house we had been renting, and the acoustics are much worse. Now, some of this I expected, because the new house... All of the floors are either tile or wood, which any of you who deal with audio know that's not a good recipe for good acoustics. But, you know, I kind of knew that and I was like, okay, fine. My new home office studio, I'll throw down a rug and a few things like that and that'll be that. But then after actually moving in and living here for a couple of days, I realized that not only were the acoustics not great, but like I said before, the house itself is extremely non-soundproof. I mean, shortly after we moved in, I realized that I could hear my wife and daughters talking on the complete opposite side of the house when I was in my office, and they could hear me. So that added additional complications into my sort of settling in and setting up my new home office slash studio, because I've ended up having to devote way more time and money and labor and energy into trying to make the new studio as good as I can you know, without spending an absolute fortune and hiring a bunch of professionals to come in and turn it into like a music studio professional grade type thing. You know, I've been trying to do the best I can with DIY stuff, but still it's required a whole bunch of extra time, labor, energy, and money in trying to make this office studio sound at least decent. So this is actually what you're hearing now is my first official Dangerous History podcast recording in the new studio, and I've got it at least most of the way where I want it to be, and hopefully when I go back through and listen to what I'm recording now, it will sound pretty good, and I won't feel like all my labors and everything have been in vain. But yeah, it's been a a stressful month or two for me, as I'm sure, you know, all of you are dealing with your own individual stresses and things. Again, from the big world down to the little world. So I'm recording this as much for myself and my own kind of therapy as I am for your listening pleasure and hopefully for your sort of, you know, morale. So in the remainder of this episode, I'm going to share with you a variety of different pieces of historical rhetoric. They're going to mostly be speeches. Now, obviously, the first one was a, you know, historical fiction account in the form of a Shakespeare speech. But the remainder will be actually historical documents 
that either were, in, in one case anyway, an essay, and in the rest of cases, actual speeches. And in the remainder of the pieces of rhetoric I'll be sharing with you in this episode, I have made some cuts to the overall text, meaning I've whittled out, you know, some sentences here, some paragraphs there, mostly just for the sake of concision and clarity. I've tried not to delete anything that, you know, manipulates the overall message of what's being said, but for the sake of keeping things somewhat more tight than if I shared all these things, you know, word for word, 100%. And also because all of these things I'm going to share with you for the remainder of this episode have various asides that are very specific to the details of the time and place in which these speeches or essays were composed. And while I have to include some of that in order to have them make sense, I try to kind of limit how many little divergences happen that are sort of nitpicky detailed stuff to the particular historical era and problem in question. But all of these are pieces of writing and rhetoric that I find very inspiring. Now, just a side note, separate the artist from the art. I'm certainly not endorsing the politics, ideology, historical actions, etc. of every single person whose rhetoric I'm sharing with you across the board. That should go without saying, but in this day and age, so many things that should go without saying need to be said, apparently. So, the remaining pieces I'm going to share with you come from Thomas Paine, Winston Churchill, and Patrick Henry. All three, in different ways, absolute master wordsmiths of the English language. So, without any further ado, let us proceed onward to some more rallying rhetoric. The Crisis by Thomas Paine December 23rd, 1776 These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. Britain, with an army to enforce her tyranny, has declared that she has a right not only to tax, but to bind us in all cases whatsoever. And if being bound in that manner is not slavery, then there is not such a thing as slavery upon earth. Even the expression is impious, for so unlimited a power can only belong to God. 
I have as little superstition in me as any man living, but my secret opinion has ever been, and still is, that God Almighty will not give up a people to military destruction, or leave them unsupportedly to perish, who have so earnestly and so repeatedly sought to avoid the calamities of war, by every decent method which wisdom could invent. Neither have I so much of the infidel in me as to suppose that he has relinquished the government of the world and given us up to the care of devils. And as I do not, I cannot see on what grounds the king of Britain can look up to heaven for help against us. A common murderer, a highwayman, or a housebreaker has as good a pretense as he. Tis surprising to see how rapidly a panic will sometimes run through a country. Yet panics, in some cases, have their uses. They produce as much good as hurt. Their duration is always short. The mind soon grows through them and acquires a firmer habit than before. But their peculiar advantage is that they are the touchstones of sincerity and hypocrisy and bring things and men to light which might otherwise have lain forever undiscovered. In fact, they have the same effect on secret traitors, which an imaginary apparition would have upon a private murderer. They sift out the hidden thoughts of man and hold them up in public to the world. I shall conclude this paper with some miscellaneous remarks on the state of our affairs, and shall begin with asking the following question. Why is it that the enemy have left the New England provinces and made these middle ones the seat of war? The answer is easy. New England is not infested with Tories, and we are. I have been tender in raising the cry against these men and used numberless arguments to show them their danger, but it will not do to sacrifice a word either to their folly or their baseness. The period is now arrived in which either they or we must change our sentiments, or one or both must fall. And what is a Tory? Good God, what is he? I should not be afraid to go with a hundred Whigs against a thousand Tories, were they to attempt to get into arms. I should not be afraid to go with a hundred Whigs against a thousand Tories, were they to attempt to get into arms. Every Tory is a coward. For servile, slavish, self-interested fear is the foundation of Toryism. And a man under such influence, though he may be cruel, can never be brave. But before the line of irrevocable separation be drawn between us, let us reason the matter together. Your conduct is an invitation to the enemy. Yet not one in a thousand of you has heart enough to join him. General Howe is as much deceived by you as the American cause is injured by you. He expects you will take up arms and flock to his standard with muskets on your shoulders. Your opinions are of no use to him unless you support him personally, for tis soldiers and not Tories that he wants. I once felt all that kind of anger, which a man ought to feel against the mean principles that are held by the Tories. A noted one, who kept a tavern at Amboy, was standing at his door with as pretty a child in his hand 
about eight or nine years old, as I ever saw, and after speaking his mind as freely as he thought was prudent, finished with this unfatherly expression. Well, give me peace in my day. Not a man lives on the continent, but fully believes that a separation must sometime or other finally take place. And a generous parent should have said, If there must be trouble, let it be in my day, that my child may have peace. And this single reflection, well applied, is sufficient to awaken every man to duty. Not a place upon earth might be so happy as America. Her situation is remote from all the wrangling world, and she has nothing to do but to trade with them. A man can distinguish himself between temper and principle, and I am as confident as I am that God governs the world, that America will never be happy till she gets clear of foreign dominion. Wars without ceasing will break out till that period arrives, and the continent must in the end be conqueror. For though the flame of liberty may sometimes cease to shine, the coal can never expire. Quitting this class of men, I turn with the warm ardor of a friend to those who have nobly stood and are yet determined to stand the matter out. I call not upon a few, but upon all. Not on this state or that state, but on every state. Up and help us. Lay your shoulders to the wheel. Better have too much force than too little when so great an object is at stake. Let it be told to the future world that in the depth of winter, when nothing but hope and virtue could survive, that the city and the country, alarmed at one common danger, came forth to meet and to repulse it. Say not that thousands are gone, turn out your tens of thousands. Throw not the burden of the day upon providence, but show your faith by your works, that God may bless you. It matters not where you live or what rank of life you hold, the evil or the blessing will reach you all. The far and the near, the home counties and the back, the rich and the poor, will suffer or rejoice alike. The heart that feels not now is dead. The blood of his children will curse his cowardice, who shrinks back at a time when a little might have saved the whole and made them happy. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress, and grow brave by reflection. Tis the business of little minds to shrink. But he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. My own line of reasoning is to myself as straight and clear as a ray of light. Not all the treasures of the world, so far as I believe, could have induced me to support an offensive war, for I think it murder. But if a thief breaks into my house, burns and destroys my property, and kills or threatens to kill me, or those that are in it, and to bind me in all cases whatsoever to his absolute will, am I to suffer it? What signifies it to me whether he who does it is a king or a common man, my countrymen or not my countrymen, whether it be done by an individual villain or an army of them? If we reason to the root of things, we shall find no difference. Neither can any just cause be assigned why we should punish in the one case and pardon in the other. 
Let them call me rebel and welcome. I feel no concern from it. But I should suffer the misery of devils were I to make a whore of my soul by swearing allegiance to one whose character is that of a sottish, stupid, stubborn, worthless, brutish man. I conceive, likewise, a horrid idea in receiving mercy from a being who at the last day shall be shrieking to the rocks and mountains to cover him and fleeing with terror from the orphan, the widow, the slain of America. There are cases which cannot be overdone by language, and this is one. There are persons, too, who see not the full extent of the evil which threatens them. They solace themselves with hopes that the enemy, if he succeed, will be merciful. It is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. And even mercy, where conquest is the object, is only a trick of war. The cunning of the fox is as murderous as the violence of the wolf, and we ought to guard equally against both. I thank God that I fear not. I see no real reason. I see no real cause for fear. I know our situation well and can see the way out of it. By perseverance and fortitude, we have the prospect of a glorious issue. By cowardice and submission, the sad choice of a variety of evils, a ravaged country, a depopulated city, habitations without safety, and slavery without hope. Our homes turned into barracks and body houses for Hessians, and a future race to provide for, whose fathers we shall doubt of. Look on this picture and weep over it. And if there yet remains one thoughtless wretch who believes it not, let him suffer it unlamented. Winston Churchill, Address to the House of Commons, June 4th, 1940. When, a week ago today, I asked the House to fix this afternoon as the occasion for a statement, I feared it would be my hard lot to announce the greatest military disaster in our long history. I thought, and some good judges agreed with me, that perhaps 20,000 or 30,000 men might be re-embarked. But it certainly seemed that the whole of the French First Army and the whole of the British Expeditionary Force north of the Amiens-Abbeville Gap would be broken up in the open field, or else would have to capitulate for lack of food and ammunition. These were the hard and heavy tidings for which I called upon the House and the nation to prepare themselves a week ago. The whole root and core and brain of the British Army, on which and around which we were to build and are to build the great British armies in the later years of the war, seemed about to perish upon the field or to be led into an ignominious and starving captivity. The enemy attacked on all sides with great strength and fierceness, and their main power, the power of their far more numerous air force, was thrown into the battle or else concentrated upon Dunkirk and the beaches. Pressing in upon the narrow exit, both from the east and from the west, the enemy began to fire with cannon upon the beaches by which alone the shipping could approach or depart. 
They sowed magnetic mines in the channels and seas. They sent repeated waves of hostile aircraft, sometimes more than a hundred strong in one formation, to cast their bombs upon the single pier that remained, and upon the sand dunes upon which the troops hid their eyes for shelter. Their U-boats, one of which was sunk, and their motor launches took their toll of the vast traffic which now began. For four or five days, an intense struggle reigned. All their armored divisions, or what was left of them, together with great masses of infantry and artillery, hurled themselves in vain upon the ever-narrowing, ever-contracting appendix within which the British and French armies fought. Meanwhile, the Royal Navy, with the willing help of countless merchant seamen, strained every nerve to embark the British and Allied troops. 220 light warships and 650 other vessels were engaged. They had to operate upon the difficult coast, often in adverse weather, under an almost ceaseless hail of bombs and an increasing concentration of artillery fire. Nor were the seas, as I have said, themselves free from mines and torpedoes. It was in conditions such as these that our men carried on, with little or no rest, for days and nights on end, making trip after trip across the dangerous waters, bringing back with them always men whom they had rescued. The numbers which they have brought back are the measure of their devotion and courage. The hospital ships, which brought off many thousands of British and French wounded, being so plainly marked, were a special target for Nazi bombs. But the men and women on board them never faltered in their duty. Meanwhile, the Royal Air Force, which had already been intervening in the battle so far as its range would allow from home bases, now used part of its main metropolitan fighter strength and struck at the German bombers and at the fighters which in large numbers protected them. This struggle was protracted and fierce. Suddenly, the scene has cleared, the crash and thunder has for the moment, but only for the moment, died away. A miracle of deliverance, achieved by valor, by perseverance, by perfect discipline, by faultless service, by resource, by skill, by unconquerable fidelity, is manifest to us all. The enemy was hurled back by the retreating British and French troops. He was so roughly handled that he did not harry their departure seriously. The Royal Air Force engaged the main strength of the German Air Force and inflicted upon them losses of at least four to one. And the Navy, using nearly a thousand ships of all kinds, carried over 335,000 men, French and British, out of the jaws of death and shame to their native land and to the tasks which lie immediately ahead. We must be very careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. But there was a victory inside this deliverance, which should be noted. It was gained by the Air Force. Many of our soldiers coming back have not seen the Air Force at work. They saw only the bombers which escaped its protective attack. They underrate its achievements. I have heard much talk of this. That is why I go out of my way to say this. When we consider how much greater would be our advantage in defending the air above this island against an overseas attack, I must say that I find in these facts a sure basis upon which practical and reassuring thoughts may rest. I will pay my tribute to these young airmen. 
may it not also be that the cause of civilization itself will be defended by the skill and devotion of a few thousand airmen? There never has been, I suppose, in all the world, in all the history of war, such an opportunity for youth. The knights of the round table, the crusaders, all fall back into the past, not only distant but prosaic. These young men, going forth every morn to guard their native land and all that we stand for, holding in their hands these instruments of colossal and shattering power, of whom it may be said, every morn brought forth a noble chance, and every chance brought forth a noble knight, deserve our gratitude, as do all the brave men who, in so many ways and on so many occasions, are ready, and continue ready, to give life and all for their native land. I return to the army. In the long series of very fierce battles now on this front, now on that, fighting on three fronts at once, battles fought by two or three divisions against an equal or somewhat larger number of the enemy, and fought fiercely on some of the old grounds that so many of us knew so well. In these battles, our losses in men have exceeded 30,000 killed, wounded, and missing. I take occasion to express the sympathy of the house to all who have suffered bereavement who are still anxious. Against this loss of over 30,000 men, we can set a far heavier loss certainly inflicted upon the enemy. But our losses in material are enormous. This loss will impose a further delay on the expansion of our military strength. That expansion had not been proceeding as far as we had hoped. The best of all we had to give had gone to the British Expeditionary Force, and although they had not the numbers of tanks and some articles of equipment which were desirable, they were a very well and finely equipped army. They had the first fruits of all that our industry had to give, and that is gone. And now here is this further delay. How long will it be, how long it will last, depends upon the exertions which we make in this island. An effort the like of which has never been seen in our records is now being made. Work is proceeding everywhere, night and day, Sundays and weekdays. Capital and labor have cast aside their interests, rights, and customs and put them into the common stock. Already the flow of munitions has leaped forward. There is no reason why we should not in a few months overtake the sudden and serious loss that has come upon us, without retarding the development of our general program. Nevertheless, our thankfulness at the escape of our army and so many men whose loved ones have passed through an agonizing week must not blind us to the fact that what has happened in France and Belgium is a colossal military disaster. The French army has been weakened, the Belgian army has been lost, a large part of those fortified lines upon which so much faith had been reposed is gone, many valuable mining districts and factories have passed into the enemy's possession, the whole of the channel ports are in his hands, with all the tragic consequences that follow from that. And we must expect another blow to be struck almost immediately at us or at France. We are told that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon lay at Boulogne for a year with his flat-bottomed boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. 
The whole question of home defense against invasion is, of course, powerfully affected by the fact that we have, for the time being, in this island, incomparably more powerful military forces than we have ever had at any time in this war or the last. But this will not continue. We shall not be content with a defensive war. We have our duty to our ally. We have to reconstitute and build up the British Expeditionary Force once again, under its gallant commander-in-chief, Lord Gort. All this is in train. But in the interval, we must put our defenses in this island into such a high state of organization that the fewest possible numbers will be required to give effective security, and that the largest possible potential of offensive effort may be realized. On this, we are now engaged. I have, myself, full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves, once again, able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny. If necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle, until in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Patrick Henry Speech to the Virginia Assembly, March 23, 1775 This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. For my own part, I consider it as nothing less than a question of freedom or slavery. And in proportion to the magnitude of the subject ought to be the freedom of the debate. It is only in this way that we can hope to arrive at truth and fulfill the great responsibility which we hold to God and our country. Should I keep back my opinions at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason towards my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. 
For my own part, whatever anguish of spirit it may cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst and to provide for it. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging the future but by the past. And judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last ten years to justify those hopes with which gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjugation, the last arguments to which kings resort. I ask, gentlemen, sir, what means this martial array, if its purpose be not to force us to submission? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. They are meant for us. They can be meant for no other. They are sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry have been so long forging. And what have we to oppose them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we have been trying that for the last ten years. Have we anything new to offer upon the subject? Nothing. We have held the subject up in every light of which it is capable. But it has been all in vain. Shall we resort to entreaty and humble supplication? What terms shall we find which have not been already exhausted? Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves. Sir, we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated, we have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted, our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult, our supplications have been disregarded, and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain after these things may we indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot? Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. 
Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. <laughs>